Well, hello, everybody. It's good to see you. Good to welcome you here to Pathway. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege today to take us into the Scriptures, and I'm very much looking forward to that. But before we jump into the Scriptures and the message, I also want to highlight something else that you find within your Pathway notes, and that is this particular flyer. It says, Give Joy to the World. Now, if you've been around Pathway, you know that this is an initiative that we are, have been a part of for many, many years now where we are taking clean water to people around the world who are dying from diseases that they don't need to die from, who are dying from the lack of clean water, and we are making an impact in that regard. You are making an impact in that regard as you give to give joy to the world. Uh, This year, our gifts are going to go to provide clean water in northern India, where the need is tremendous, it is great, and also a piece of it will also go to our work in our sister city, in our sister community in Orkarkar in Kenya. And so this is something that has really galvanized the people of Pathway over the last several years, and we're looking forward to doing this again. Essentially, it's an initiative that runs through Christmas Eve, and we'd encourage you to be thinking about and praying about how you might partner with us in that. Out in the lobby, there is a table that uh, has information about that. Same thing is true in the different campuses and venues. Welcome, by the way, to those of you in Classic and, and on the Moon campus. And uh, the information is available for you as well in the back of your rooms. And also at the table or also in those places, you can find one of these. You might have that person on your gift list who's very difficult to shop for, Um, but they might be moved by being a part of a project like this. You might want to give a gift in honor of someone of that nature, or maybe in memory, whatever. If you would like, you can go out there. This is actually a greeting card that you can pick up. tells a little bit about what the project is about and a place for you to add a personal note as well, and that might be something that you'd like to do. So we just want to make those things available to you as we think about making a difference in the world, taking clean water, taking the the living water of Jesus along with that because the gospel goes out as the water wells are provided also. So excited about that. Just wanted to draw that to your attention as we're getting that kicked off now for this Christmas season. So welcome everybody to the Christmas season. Can you believe that we are already here? It seems hard to believe to me. Can you believe that it's only going to be just a little over three weeks and Christmas is going to be over? Does that bring a sense of dread for anybody (laughs) because of all of the things that you need to do between now and a little over three weeks from now, the gifts that you have to buy and the food you have to bake and the concerts you have to go to and, and all of the different things that come along with the Christmas season. And those are all good things, nothing wrong with that. But our emphasis, our purpose here for sure is going to be that we don't lose sight of the reason that this season really is all about. And that's about Jesus come down to earth. And that's what we are are celebrating in this season. That's what the topic is that we're going to be addressing throughout this season. It's the name of our new sermon series. I hope you brought your journals back with you, your sermon journals back with you, because we're using them for one final series, this final series, and there is a sticker that you perhaps have already gotten, and that's awesome. If you don't have one of these journals, maybe you're brand new, maybe you just haven't 
gotten one, we can get one of these for you out at the information center. You can stop out there after the service. But very much looking forward to taking us into this topic and, and moving ourselves along in this as we think about down to earth. As we do so, that's certainly a celebration of the fact that Jesus left all of the glories of heaven and he came down to our planet. He came down to earth. It partly is that. But when we think about something that's down to earth, we also think about something that is very accessible. We think of something that is very natural, very practical. And that's another piece of what we find in the Christmas story, is that Jesus came not in some sort of mysterious fashion. He came to reveal himself to us. He came in a down-to-earth sort of, I love you, I want to surround you, I want to be with you sort of way. And so it is both of those things. Yes, Jesus come down, but also the fact that understanding who Jesus is and growing in who he is in our own individual lives is also something that is very accessible to us. It is all down to earth. Now, throughout this season, we're going to be focusing on four different themes as we make our way along. We kick off the first of those today, and it is this. As we think about Jesus being down to earth, we think also of the fact that he, that Jesus has a plan all the way along. God has a plan. Not just God had a plan, but God has a plan. We'll talk about that as we make our way along. Now, all of us establish plans, and sometimes our plans work out really well, and sometimes they don't work out all that well, depending on the nature of the plan that we have made. I read about a guy from Detroit who was actually carrying off a string of burglaries and he sort of left his calling card in all the places that he went after he robbed them on his way out the door. He would leave a malt liquor there on the counter for them to find. So the cops knew that they were dealing with a serial robber. And so everybody in the community is getting very nervous about this, and they want to catch this guy, and so they put out a reward that anybody who had information that could lead to his arrest, that they'd be given this reward. And so they got a call from someone who said, I have critical information for you, and uh, I will give that to you, but I want to get in writing the fact that you're going to give me this money, this reward. And so they gave him that in writing, and he actually went down to the police station, and he says, I have critical information about this, who this person is, and you're going to give the reward, right? And absolutely, we will do that. He said, well, it's me. He said, I'm the one. And surprise to him, they didn't give him the reward, they arrested him because he was this serial robber, and now he's in the process of suing them for breach of contract. That was his plan. He's going to turn himself in as the one who was the robber so that he could collect the reward, which I guess was maybe a little bit more than what he had gotten in all the different robberies that he had carried out. Well, we need a plan, but sometimes our plans don't necessarily work out that well, but God's plan is perfect. And the plan that he carried out in that first Christmas season that we celebrate was an absolute perfect plan about him coming down to earth. And today we're going to take a look at that. And there's a particular passage of Scripture that I find to be very helpful in this regard that we're going to be digging into that deals with the piece of the Christmas story that we're going to be talking about. Now, it's a little bit unconventional. It's not necessarily the first one that you think of, because if I ask you what passage do you think of when it comes to Christmas, you might say, I have no idea, or you might have some specific ones. And oftentimes, people think of the Gospels, and rightfully so. I can remember all the way back to when I was a kid, I had a Sunday school teacher, and he was actually, he owned a junkyard. 
And so he'd come to class, and he'd ask us Bible questions, and if we could answer the Bible question, the prize that he would give us were used car parts. That's what he would give us, that he'd stripped off of different cars. And so he asked this question. I remember it still to this day. He asked, where do we find in the Scriptures the story of Jesus come to earth, or the Christmas story? And I said, Matthew and Luke which is exactly what he was looking for. And so that day, I went home with a used, kind of cleaned off, carburetor. (laughs) My parents were thrilled to see me coming up from the Sunday school class with a used carburetor, right? Okay, so there is the Gospels. That is a natural place where we would go. That's what tells us about the angels and the shepherds and all of that good stuff, and Matthew and Luke primarily, but there are many, many other passages in the Scriptures that tell us about the incarnation, or Jesus come down to earth, and we're going to look at one of those here today, and it's specifically in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, and the passage we're going to look at is Galatians chapter 5, or excuse me, 4, verses 4 and 5, and honestly, this is one of my very favorite Christmas passages And it doesn't contain all of that other detail about Mary and Joseph and all of that, but it does tell us that Jesus came down to earth, and it tells us why he came down to earth. It tells us his purpose in coming and what he ultimately fulfilled in doing so. And so here's what this passage actually says. Just let me just read it to you. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Three primary features about God's plan here that I want to just draw out of this text. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to be. It might be valuable for you to have it just open there in your lap. So the first of those is this. First feature has to do with a timely arrival. With a timely arrival, therefore your outline. Now one of the things that I've observed about a timely arrival is that different people interpret that differently. Just think about in your own life. For some people, being on time means being or showing up like 10 minutes before the scheduled start time for whatever that event is. For other people, it's like showing up maybe a minute or two or more after the scheduled start time for that particular event. Here's something else I've observed. Oftentimes, people on either end of that spectrum marry one another. And that tends to create some challenges on occasion, things that don't get along. And those of you who are snickering know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's probable that those of you who are the 10 minutes early people have probably just elbowed your spouse to let them know how they have it wrong, right? Or something like that. Um, We all, isn't it interesting how we tend to marry sort of the opposite in that regard? Of course, we also want to encourage a timely arrival when it comes to worship services, so that you would get here so that you could at least see at least a few seconds of the countdown to the service start. Some of you are like, there's a countdown to the service start? And uh, we would encourage you toward a timely arrival also as we go forward. All right, a timely arrival is important, and Jesus' arrival was at the perfect moment we are told. Paul says about Jesus what we've already looked at. When the set time had fully come... When the time was right, God sent his son. So, the question that naturally comes to our mind, or I imagine it does to your mind, is, well, what was it about that time that made it the right time? Was it just that there were so many years that once time began that 
God wanted to wait, and now those time, that time, there was, there was more to it than that. And I just want to lay some of this out for you. It's a, it's a little bit of a history lesson, but I find this stuff fascinating, and uh, at least just indulge me if you don't. So here's what made some of it the right time. A number of different things. Some of them actually took place long before Jesus comes on the scene. In fact, the first of those that I would mention is one that happened a, a few hundred years before Jesus actually was going to show up. There was a very, very powerful ruler here on earth, and and uh, his name is Alexander the Great. And even if you daydreamed your way through history class, and who didn't, <laughs> if, even if so, you are aware of this name. You've heard this name before. And the reason that everybody knows his name is because, because a very powerful ruler, very effective military conqueror, and essentially conquered most of the known world at that time, which we refer to as like the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire, and you can see it here. If we move on, there you go. You can see it as a very vast empire. And because it captured so much of the world, the language of that empire, which was Greek, starts to spread all the way throughout all of this region. It's got a, a few hundred years to do so. And so by the time Jesus shows up, he shows up into a world where there is this common language, essentially, spreading through all of these places, so the news about Jesus could sp spread very broadly, it could, it could spread very quickly, because everybody is speaking, essentially, everybody is speaking the same language. It's a perfect time, because the news about Jesus could be spread far and wide. Well, eventually, the he dies, and pretty soon the kingdom starts to wane a little bit, and, and another kingdom comes in and defeats it and replaces it, and this is the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire. Now, now, if you have guys in your life, you need to ask them how often they think about the Roman empire, because if you are a social media person, you know that it is probably a lot more than you would anticipate, all right? Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. All right, so the Roman Empire comes on the scene, and it's a very powerful empire to be sure, and they think that they need some new taxes and some, a new census to be done, and so that's where this guy comes on the scene. Caesar Augustus issues this decree that people would go back to their homeland. That's what gets Mary and Joseph on the move that is moving them to the little town of Bethlehem, which should ring a bell, of course, for all of us. But something else that made that new empire impressive in the right time was law and order. If you did something that required or was justification for you to be executed for your crime because it was so bad, you would be executed for your crime. But here's the interesting thing with the Roman Empire. Before and after and even in other cultures, they didn't use some of the same means for execution that the Romans did. It's when the Romans come on the scene that we start to see this form of execution called what? Crucifixion. Exactly right. And so here is Jesus now. You have the prophets predicting even hundreds of years before the Roman Empire comes around. These prophets in the Scriptures are predicting that Jesus is going to come on the scene, that he is going to be crucified, even though they didn't really understand what that means. They didn't use crucified. They talked about being you know, killed on a tree, executed on a tree, die on a tree, that sort of thing. They didn't even really know what they were talking about. But here, hundreds of years later, Jesus comes on the scene right in the moment in time when crucifixion is being used as a form of execution. Coincidence? Yeah, I don't think so. 
It's also the relative law and order of the time that brought an unparalleled peace to the region, something that is referred to as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. It is a point in time when there's the ability to travel back and forth between places is much easier to do because there's not constant wars and battles that you're trying to navigate your way through. The road system was well developed by the Romans, and all of a sudden you've got Paul, not long after Jesus dies, who goes with others on these missionary journeys all throughout the same region, and they're able to move quickly and freely and easily to these places and establish Christian churches right at this time. It would not have been possible in the same way earlier than this particular moment. There's much more that we could say about this being the fullness of time, but don't get the idea that God was stuck up in heaven and he's like, oh man, he's twiddling his thumbs. He's like, I sure hope that something happens down there on earth so that we get to the place where I can finally send Jesus. That is not what is going on here. God is sovereignly in control of all circumstances, no doubt. There's nothing accidental or coincidental about this. God orchestrated Jesus' arrival at exactly the moment in time that it was appropriate. And he continues to do that today. This is what we need to understand because it's not just that God had a plan, that God worked out a plan, and now that's over and he's kind of brushed his hands of it, and he's, he's moved on to other things. God still has a plan, and that plan involves you, and that plan involves me. And the things that are going on in your life are not accidental. They are not coincidental either, any more than the original circumstances were, because God is continuing to work out his sovereign purposes in our lives. And if he can use nations and events of world history to accomplish his purposes, he can certainly use the events that are going on in your life and mine to accomplish his purposes as well. We may not understand all of it. We might not see or recognize all of what he is doing. But the fact of the matter is that God is at work in all times and all seasons of your life and my life. And we can have confidence in that very fact that God has a plan that he is accomplishing in you just as he did long, long ago. So, first feature of God's plan in coming down to earth is a timely arrival. The second is a human entrance. A human entrance. You know, there are a bunch of miracles that surround Jesus coming to earth. His incarnation, that's what him coming into the earth is referred to as, his incarnation. There's all sorts of miracles that happen in there, but none of them are any greater than Jesus being born of a virgin woman and taking on human flesh. But that's exactly what he does. We read of it over and over again in the Scriptures. In John chapter 1, it says the Word, the Word is just a description for Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In Colossians chapter 2, we read, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Philippians 2, we read, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Again and again, we read of the fact that Jesus takes on flesh, that he becomes like one of us. Or in our own passage, back to Galatians 4, it puts it this way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Several reasons why it's important that Jesus came down into our world as one who is fully human. And one of those is so that he might be able to identify with us. 
God certainly, because of his otherly nature, certainly could have just stayed in heaven. He could have stood back. He could have not engaged himself in this messy world. He could have kept to himself. He could have, you know, just issued commands. But that's not who he is. In his down-to-earth nature, he comes to be like one of us. In fact, he comes to be one of us, taking on flesh, entering into our world so that we might know and recognize who God is because we get to see him there in the flesh and interact and understand more of who he is. It's absolutely critical also that he does so so that he might be an appropriate sacrifice for us when he goes to the cross because he came to identify with us. He came to be tempted in every way just as we are. And because he perfectly resisted that temptation, being fully human, he becomes the perfect representative for us as he goes to the cross, that all of our sins could be put on him as our representative. Another reason this human entrance is important is because it comes into our world under the law, the verse says. Nothing else is under the law. Humans are under the law. Animals aren't under the law. Angels aren't under the law. Humans are under the law. The law is just simply a description of our righteousness before God or what God is looking for from His people, how He is looking for us to live. But no human being has ever lived up to that moral code. Now, it's not that people haven't tried. In fact, the fact of the matter is there are still people today who are trying to live up to the moral code as a means to earn their righteousness before God. But they're falling short. They keep trying. That's where they're putting their trust, but they keep falling short of that mark because nobody can accomplish it on their own. It just can't be done. Earlier in Galatians, the chapter before, says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. It's as plain as it could be. Why? Because the righteous will live by faith. That's the difference. We're not here to earn our own way to God. We're here to put our faith in Jesus. That is the key. That's what this is all about. But no human is able to live up to the law of God, and because of that, it creates a divide. It creates a separation, a barrier between imperfect man, sinful mankind, and a perfect God. And because there is that difference, because there is that chasm that exists between the two, there can't be fellowship, there can't be oneness, there cannot be unity between them. That sin has to be taken out of the way. This sounds familiar. We are simply talking about the the plain and simple gospel, that we have a need that God sent His Son into the world so that need might be accomplished by Him taking our sin as an appropriate representative, fully human, to the cross so that our sin might be paid for by him because we cannot begin to pay for it on our own. That is the most beautiful message that exists in all of the world, and it is a simple gospel, and it is that which all of us are called to respond to, and it's available for all who would put their faith and trust in him. There's a theological word for that, and it is this. It's called redemption. Redemption. Now, I know that that might sound a little bit off-putting or difficult or challenging or intimidating, but it's not. It simply means, redemption simply means to buy back. Imagine that I owe you some money, and I don't have that money to pay you, and you don't have the kindness to forgive your pastor's debt. Shame on you. But you don't, and so it's like, all right, I owe you, so I'll give you my watch instead as payment for my debt. I love my watch, but you take it. Thanks a lot. 
All right, so now I still want my watch, so I finally get the money together, and I come to you, and I buy my watch back. I'm redeeming my watch. That's what's happening. Now, as it's originally used here, it was used in reference to buying a slave out of slavery. So there'd be an established amount of money. You would go, you would pay that money, and you redeem that slave. You take them out of their slavery. That's how it was Use. So Galatians 4 here talks about Jesus came in the fullness of time. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law. That's what this is talking about. This is where it all sort of comes together. Then echoing that, just one chapter earlier, just following up on some of the verses we read earlier from Galatians 3, here he says it as plainly as possible. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That means that Jesus came into our world. He purchased our freedom. He redeemed us from the sinful outcome, the sinful responsibility that we had so that that might be taken care of so that we could have fellowship together with God by dying in our place. And it's critical to recognize that Jesus came as in, in a human entrance so that we might have the freedom from that sin. But we also need to recognize that, just I'll say it just briefly here, that he also, it was important that he was understood to be fully God as well. Because as he's fully human, he's an appropriate representative. As being fully God at the same time, he's an adequate representative. Or he's, uh, uh, there's enough substance into who he is. Back to Colossians chapter 2 again, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, dwells in bodily form. Fully God and fully man is what this is talking about. An adequate representative and a sufficient representative at the same time. And with that, the plan of God in coming down to earth seems complete, right? Jesus came into our world at the perfect time, he entered in as one who is fully human so that he could die. He dies on our behalf, he is crucified, and he rises again. End of story, stick a fork in it, let the fat lady sing, it's over. Right? That's where we often leave it. I don't want us to leave it there. Paul says, no, 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 that's not enough. There is something more. There's one more feature, and Paul points out, lastly, a stunning adoption. This is important. A stunning adoption. It's not just that the believer has been redeemed from something, from our sin, we've been redeemed to something. It's not just that we have freedom from sin. There is something that that creates in us. That's something, there is something that that makes us. And oftentimes I'm afraid we sort of leave this on the shelf when it comes to understanding who we are. Here's the way that Paul puts it in the context of our passage. But when the set time had fully come, we've seen this, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Here we go. Look at it that we might receive adoption to sonship. I just want you to have that kind of roll around in your mind for a minute. What does it mean to receive adoption to sonship? What is he getting at here? Well, in the first century Roman world, a childless, wealthy man could take one of his slaves and he could adopt him as his own son. And as he would do so, that son or that 
slave, former slave, is no longer a slave. Now they are a full-fledged member of that family. And all of the privileges that are a part of that family, be them financial, be them social, be them whatever they are, all of those have been bestowed now on the son. You understand how adoption works. And it is saying that very same thing in this context. But I'm afraid that sometimes we are ones who have come to understand because we've heard it so often that God has saved us from our sin and we have salvation and that's good. And it kind of stops there when it's so important that we would recognize there is so much more as being adopted as sons than what we ultimately recognize. I once heard it sort of described this way, as though humankind is like a prisoner. A prisoner, is that is a prisoner that has been sentenced to death because of their crimes, but in the 11th hour, that prisoner receives a stay of execution, which is great. Good for that person, all right? And that's essentially what we think God has done for us. We deserved death, spiritual death, because of our sin. God has stepped in and he gave us a stay of execution through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's awesome, but that only goes so far. If we're really to understand what Jesus has done, we need to extend that analogy further to say it's not just that this person received a stay of their execution. Also, they were released from prison and set free, and they received and were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And you're kind of like, well, that seems like that's going a bit far for that prisoner. And it, and it is. Similarly, it seems as though that's going a bit far for us, that we didn't deserve what we were given, and we didn't deserve it. But we were given it nonetheless, which is what, exactly what makes it amazing grace. It is exactly what makes it what we're talking about here, this stunning adoption. And we need to recognize that what all that is all about. But don't lose sight of what it costs to be adopted. Some of you have adopted children, or if you talk to somebody who has, they will tell you what some of the costs were, that there are mountains of paperwork that you need to fill out. They'll tell you that there are home visits that you have to go through. They'll tell you that there are significant financial costs to adopt a child, and on and on they could go. But imagine you get the call from the adoption agency, and they say, you've been approved, everything is settled. All you need to do now is come on down and pick up your child, and when you do, remember, you need to bring another child that can be sacrificed so that you can take home your adopted child. You'd be like, oh, wait a second. That's way beyond what I can fathom giving. Yet that's exactly what God did. God gave his son so that we might be able to be adopted. It took nothing less than that, the sacrifice of his son, that we might have what comes in our direction. John says this, see what great love, hopefully we can understand just the depth of this love and understanding what we have been saved from and adopted to. See what great love the Father lavishes on us that we should be called, here we go, children of God, adopted into God's family. And when you think of the new status that you have as a believer in God's family, you need to think of the sort of privileges that you have been given. And I'm afraid far too often we don't live in light of or we don't live out the privileges that we have been given. Just think of what some of those are for a moment. It means that you have the unmitigated love of the Father bestowed on you, lavished on you. That alone should be enough to have you jumping up and down 
and singing and shouting God's praises. But it doesn't stop there. You have the ready access and fellowship with the Father. You are made an heir of all of the bounties of heaven. You are given freedom from your sin. You are given the power to overcome future sin in your life. You are given the Holy Spirit of God to come and indwell your spirit and indwell your life along with the fruit that he brings, love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on and on we could go. This is who you are, and that should influence and impact the way that you live. It should influence how you see yourself. It, It should influence how you behave. There are certain expectations that we might have for one who is has been adopted into your personal family. You would have expectations. And there are expectations on us as well as being adopted into God's family that we should celebrate the things that he has provided, that we should live in light of that. We should recognize our royal adoption and that we should live as children of the king, children who have been set free from sin and have been made free, being adopted as sons and daughters of the God of the universe. That's who we are. That ought to impact how we live, moment by moment by moment. But does it? And how do we receive that anyway? How do we get there? How do we become adopted in this? Is it because we've been made, we've all been made in God's image, so it just sort of happens automatically? No. That's not how it happens. Here's what we read. So in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. How? Through faith. Through faith. Adoption is the result of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. It is more, listen, it is more than just believing He exists. It's more than that. Demons believe that. They shudder, we're told. It's more than that. It's more than generally being a good person. It's more than having decent church attendance. It's more than all of that. It's about fully orienting your life around His will and His Word. Fully orienting your life around His will and His Word. It's about putting your trust in Him for what He has done on your behalf. You know, a slave They didn't have to accept the redemption that might be purchased for them. They could resist it. And the fact is that all around the world today, there are people resisting the redemption of God. We're turning Him back. We're turning Him away. Or it could be that we're just living a flippant life, sort of wanting the best of what that might entail. We've been fully adopted into the family, or or so we're trying to perhaps pretend or act as though it's a full thing and we're just kind of off doing our own thing. We're not living as a part of the family. Sort of pretending. But there's a piece of that that we want in terms of what it, that now says of us without the rest. And we need to ask ourselves, what sort of fruit is there in keeping with the response that God is calling us to? We need to receive what Jesus has done on our behalf by submitting ourselves to him. See, it's not just that God had a plan. And we celebrate Christmas, and everything is looking back to a manger and to a moment and to a mother and to a father and 
when we come to Christmas so often, that's our focus, is it's all back on what happened at that mangy stable. Instead of recognizing that God has a plan, there is something in this season that God wants to do to you. He came down to earth in a down-to-earth fashion to meet us, to provide for us, to identify with us, and to call us as followers of His. Love He showed long ago has been extended to us, and we want to respond. It's something that I long to have be true of every one of us, that His down-to-earth work on our behalf, His mercy, His grace, would be something that we have all received, that we would live into the adoption that is ours. I want to give you that opportunity right now to move in that direction, perhaps in a brand new way. Would you bow your heads with me? You may be here, you may be listening in one of the venues or online. Asking yourself the question is, is this something that is genuinely true of me? That I have been and received this adoption to sonship, that I have indeed put my faith, not just, not just acknowledging that Jesus exists, not just acknowledging that He came into our world, but that He is Savior, my Savior, my Lord. Not because of something I've done, not because I've, I've lived so well under the law, we all come up short, but because we're resting what Jesus has done for us. So in this moment, I want to give you that opportunity to take the chance as we come into this Advent season, as we celebrate all that Jesus did in coming into our world in a timely fashion, to come and identify with us. That's the length that He went to, God of the universe, taking on human flesh so that we might know so that we might respond. For some of us, we're living in such a way that it certainly doesn't demonstrate a gratitude for all that He came to do, all that He suffered on our behalf. And for some of us, we need to say, Lord, You are Lord of my life. And in this moment, I want to turn and move and live in a direction as one who has received adoption no longer sort of taking bits and pieces, no longer living out a little bit of who I've been adopted to be and, and just living out my own priorities beyond that. So, Father, for those who are here who are acknowledging that there are steps that this season should represent, there are steps of a closer devotion, of a closer walking with You, Lord, I pray for each one and ask for a courage, a commitment to take those steps, to make that commitment to live forward as your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, I'd also pray for those who are here who are saying, you know what, I, I'm just not sure. I don't know. I, I've been resting in a lot of things Maybe something that 
family has done as I grew up, or maybe because I grew up in the church, or maybe because I think that things look better in my life than they do in most people around me, and, and I'll be okay with that. And, and characteristic of all of those things would be that if we're genuinely honest in our own heart and mind and spirit and soul, we, we have a little bit of question in there about whether or not that is enough, about whether or not we genuinely have put our faith in Him, not just believing He exists, but putting our faith and our trust in what He's done. And friend, if that's you, you can simply acknowledge the fact that you recognize that your sin has separated you from God, that Jesus came into the world to die, to take your sin out of the way, and that you can put your faith and trust in Him and what He has done and no longer in yourself. It only comes in submitting yourself fully to who He is and what He has done. So if that's what you would like to do, you can do that just right now. You can just do it on your own, talking to God, or if it would be helpful, you could pray something that includes thoughts like these. God, I'm a sinner. It's easy to see in my life that that is true. Today I come to confess those sins and I'm asking for your forgiveness. I want to be your child. I want as this Christmas season gets started to lean into what Jesus came to do, not just to be born, but to die so that I might have life. Today I accept the work of Jesus on my behalf, putting my faith no longer in myself but in you. Make me your own. Bring me your salvation. And if that's your prayer, it's settled. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service or sometime soon. I'd love to help you get started and get confidence in the decision that you've made. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you made a way at the perfect time to send Jesus that we might have hope, that we might find life. It can only be found in one place, and that's in you. And we rejoice in the fact that you have a plan, a plan that's been carried out different stages, different times for the people who were present in the moment. We're here now, and we thank you that your love extends to us. We celebrate it and rejoice in it even as we give thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.